You're listening to The Film File, the film podcast for film geeks by film geeks, just around the corner from this cinema. Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And boy, do we have an interesting show for you. But you've not just tuned in for that. Andy, how have you been? Uh, not great. Oh, dear. We're, we've just spoken off air, <clears throat> and I won't go into full detail about it, but uh, the return from Banbury has, has it, well, it's given me what you've told me as has a term for. Yeah, post-tour uh, blues. Post-tour blues. Uh, I've spent three and a half, almost four months with one group of a social circle in Banbury that it just feels weird being back in Sheffield. And as much as I'm glad I'm back in Sheffield, you know, I do love my family. I did miss my friends here. I can't, I, I feel anxious and I feel like out of sorts and like, you know, something's not quite right in the world because I'm so used to that, that four months that I've had. I've had a completely different lifestyle for four months. You know, a group from work all went out the other night and I had to make excuses and not go um, because, and I told them that I felt tired. And I've now told a few of them and any of them who listen to the podcast will now know the true reason. It's because I felt awkward. I didn't feel like I belonged in that social circle anymore. And it, it's going to take me a while to adjust to this. It's going to take me a while to get back to my normal self. At work, I'm my normal self. I've always been good at putting a mask on. I've always been good at like, you know, right, you're in work mode now. Bam, bam, bam. But it's when I'm outside of work that all that I'm doing is I'm, I'm wallowing a lot. I'm wallowing and I've been forcing myself to go for walks, as I've been saying on the past few shows. Yeah, I've been going for long walks. Uh, I did one walk the other day while I was procrastinating. I, I was supposed to have edited last week's podcast. I thought initially we'll record on the Sunday. I'll get it edited Sunday night. I've got the whole week to myself. It got to Monday and it was like, I'll start editing it, but I found other things to do. Got to Tuesday. I actually loaded up all the audio on the computer, had it all set up, ready to start on, and then went for a walk. And my walk took me four and a half miles into Sheffield City Centre and I ended up at work. <laughs> Going to the cinema. And that's where my head is at the moment. It's it's finding things to focus on to try to, you know, to try to snap me out of it and get me back into my normal routine. I'm intending to edit today's podcast straight after recording because we're recording this while there's the Queen's funeral going on. Um, we mentioned last week how we're not royalists. So the fact that TV is dominated by it today has kind of both given us the inspiration to record today. <laughs> yeah, it meant yesterday I, uh, I I could clean the house, which uh, it looked like the Adams family house. Um, so the term post tour blues is uh, is is what musicians, what I had when I came off uh, almost a year long tour. Even though I'll be back for every four or five weeks, you are in this sort of protective bubble. You are yeah. your adrenaline's running because you're not. You're never really properly relaxing in the way that you do at home in your own environment, you're in hotel rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you get this, you, I think your adrenaline is just on overload all the time because you, you are, for want of a better term, constantly in work mode. Yeah. And I think that's what happens. And when you come down, that adrenaline rush suddenly comes to an end. You, you're at source. It, it is, trust me, you do have post-tour blues and I've talked to musicians and you know I've got uh, uh, friends who are famous musicians very famous and a friend of mine we would always go out once a week and when he came back off tour he would uh, he wouldn't want to go out he would just need that 
decompression, like coming up mm. from the bottom of the ocean, like, uh, you know, you've seen those old movies, not getting the bends, having to go into decompression chamber. That's what it is, my friend. It will pass and you will um, and you will be back to your old self. But to be honest, your big constant in life has been the show. Yeah, uh, this is one thing to focus on each week. You know, not only with the recording of it and the editing it, which you know, I, I have that fun nine-hour job after recording. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, Bless you, sir. Bless you. It's the research and it's the watching of films. And when we're doing the deep dives, I always insist on re-watching the film a couple of days before the show to get it fresh in my mind. No matter how often I've watched a film, I will always re-watch it. And as you know, I just blag it. <laughs> but also this week, it's you know. Um, in order to procrastinate procrastination when you're me is either playing conan exiles or watching films and i've watched all the planets of the apes films have you that's interesting i have completed the series so we are going to deep dive the planets of the apes series at some point because we had a little chat (laughs) funny enough as i said yesterday we were doing a like a, a a big deep clean on the house yesterday so it didn't look like the adams family house and i came across boxes of dvds that i will I will never watch. And there's some I've picked out, like when we did Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I found my copy of that for yeah. the other week. And I found a, the my first proper box set of Planet of the Apes movies. Ooh. The original original set. And uh, it was interesting that you just mentioned when uh, we caught up the other night that you'd just been watching it and comparing a favourite Planet of the Apes movies. Because we're not yeah. on the same track, are we? We've not got necessarily, some, no. And that's so, going to be an interesting deep dive. It could be interesting to explore the whole franchise. Yeah, know, including, including the Tim Burton. Including the Tim and, uh, uh, I think it's worth readdressing. And I've just started on the Halloween franchise. Have you? I've, I've, I watched the first two films yesterday. and um, I'm, I never got past two. I've been looking on Letterboxd, and there's a load of people who are obviously taking advantage of the fact that Netflix still has the first five Halloween films on there until the end of this month, because so many of the people who are follow are now watching all the Halloween films. It's like, well, we're all falling for it. We're all doing it. And we're all going to go into that final film next month and feel disappointed. Inevitably, <laughs> we will feel disappointed. But you know what? It's been years since I last went. I mean, I, I watched Season of the Witch about two years ago. I've got um, a lot of time for Season of the Witch. It I, uh, shouldn't have been called Halloween 3. Well, the, the original idea for Halloween was it to be an anthology series anyway. Yeah. So that was the one which was most linking it's to what really it was supposed to be. But I've not seen four and five, Curse of Michael Myers and Return of Michael Myers, since they first came out. Yeah, so these trust are me, you're be, doing yourself a favour by not seeing it. But These are going to be interesting revisits. Um, I, I remember enjoying ha- Halloween H2O, so I'm kind of looking Ooh, yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. That. You know my thoughts on the Rob Zombie movie. I will give... Yeah, I think I think my thoughts on Rob Zombie anything are quite clear to the world. The, 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 they're only a step above my thoughts on Paul Blart Mall Cop. and we know your thoughts on that shall we get into the show we will never be deep diving paul blart mall cop (laughs) (laughs) not unless it's a it's a a a cruel prank (laughs) and that's what it would be so what have we got in this week's edition of the film file well action-packed as always because of course we have the news all the gossip and the box office we've got our deep dive into the Neil Gaiman adaptation, Stardust. We've got reviews of... Well, once again, me and Lee both saw the film together, and it's Clerks 3. We both got love for Clerks. This could be an interesting review. I've also seen The Fall, which has been on limited cinema release across the UK, and landed on Netflix this week, Do Revenge. But before all that, here's this week's news. <laughs> 
So, of course, we start the news every week by the box office. And let's kick off by taking a look what's happening overseas with the US box office. Andy, what's happening overseas? So, overseas in the US, the weekend finished with a new release, The Woman King, which sees Viola Davis in a historical epic taking 19 million over the weekend. That's not bad for this kind of weekend. It's not bad at all, considering we're on a dead zone of um, films out there. Barbarian dropped into second place, taking 6.3 million. Uh, The horror, which doesn't come out for another couple of weeks in the UK. I'm hearing a lot of stuff about The Barbarian. I know very little about it. The horror community are lapping it up, and I've not read a lot about it, because I I prefer to go in blind with a lot of horrors, especially if it's a new, new idea horror. I like to be surprised rather than inevitably have things spoiled. So I'm intrigued with this one because I'm seeing the reaction of it online. Pearl, which is the sequel to Ty West's X, went into third place with 3.1 million. Considering X only cost about a million to make and took 20 odd million, I'm expecting that Pearl was also a cheap budget and has already broken even. Yeah, and it's part of a planned trilogy, isn't it, as well? Yes, the third one's already been announced, so we've got that to look forward to. I've still not seen X. Um, no. I do intend to get round to it because I have heard, again, a lot of good buzz about it. Although I do like Ty West. I have heard the flip side, that it's it's one of those films that you will either absolutely love or you will detest. Right. Fourth place, see how they run. It's our pick of the week from oh, last week. Oh, that's good to see that it's broken into the States. Yep. Uh, it's open. It's got 3.1 million this weekend. And Bullet Train is still riding those rails, 2.5 million, which means Top Gun Maverick has finally dropped out of the top five. Wow. Yes, Top Gun Maverick is at sixth place. <laughs> so it's not dropped too far, but it's <laughs> finally moved out. We finally got three new releases into the top five, which um, shows that whilst it's a quieter time, there's a wealth of material out there and pretty much something for everyone as well. So that's the US. Where do we stand on our own fair shores? Which I'm, I am assuming in advance of this, Andy, that the cinemas are still taking a bit of a kicking in light of uh, the death of the Queen. I went to join you for a screening the other night and town and the cinema itself all felt very, very quiet. So has that had a, had a knock on? in our box office. Now, whilst it didn't make it into the top five, Moon Age Daydream scored an impressive £3,629 per cinema this opening weekend. It's opened exclusively in IMAX for its first week. It goes to full release next week. Um, a total of 181467 on those 50 IMAX screens across the UK. Quite an impressive start and bodes well for next weekend. But anyway, the top five has See How They Run holding... The top spot this week, taking another 985,000 for 2.9 million so far to date. Minions Rise of Gru still holding in there, another 321,000 added to its total. Top Gun Maverick still flying in the top five of the UK. Bullet Train in fourth place and in fifth place, DC League of Super Pets. As you know, big music fan as much as I am a film fan. So the, the Bowie documentary is very high on my list. And I know it's on limited release, so... Uh, Can't wait to see it. I've heard a lot of interesting things about it. Uh, The reviews have been good, and I know it had the family's involvement. So there's there's that amount of credibility uh, involved with it. So let's move on to other news. I've got some interesting news. No one ever saw this coming, even after our deep dive. Oh, even you're, after you're we straight said, in with the news that I had at the top of my list. <laughs> <laughs> because no one saw this coming. This wasn't on our DC uh, bingo cards at all. <laughs> Keanu no. Reeves returning for a Constantine sequel. Surely 
someone at, uh, at Warner's has been listening to the show, and we know that the the buzz is still about for this movie because there they go. Well, you know, may, maybe Bob Iger, who we we discovered last week, clearly listens to the show. Maybe he's been speaking to Zaslav and saying, you, "You know, mate, you know, mate, these guys they talked about Constantine. You should make it." Uh, yeah, I mean, we hinted that it had been in development hell since the first film came out. The first film wasn't a rattling success, but it was enough of a success to get some interest. But it's taken all these years and we're finally getting Constantine 2. Now, this news came on the back of the news that the HBO Max series of Constantine has been canned. The HBO Max was planning a Constantine revival. That's been completely, completely chucked away now. And initially, all fans were like, oh, but then as soon as Keanu Reeves goes, oh, yeah, I'm coming back as Constantine. It's like, well, we're there for that. The original director, Francis Lawrence, is also returning. So we'll have the same style. We'll have the same approach. I'm really excited. I mean, if you want to know how excited we are for this, just go back two episodes and listen to our Constantine deep dive because we expressed our love for the visual style, the approach, and everything about that film. There's no details on plot yet, and there's no details on any other returning cast, but please, please bring back Peter Stormare and Tilda Swinton. Bring them back at least. Yeah, They were just magnificent as Lucifer and Gabriel. But Akiva Goldsman is penning the script as we speak. It's it's kind of interesting because fans were so divided about the original release of Constantine. You know, as we mentioned in the deep dive, he wasn't Liverpudlian, he wasn't blonde, he wasn't Sting. And yet, over the years, the, the love has grown for this, almost like an alternate version to another mythos reality. It's become one of those films which I think has grown in the minds of fans. I mean, it's it's always on some streaming service. And, and I think the love for Keanu Reeves has grown over the last few years, especially in wake of, of, of the John Wick series. Yep. So it, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I never thought ever that it would happen. J.J. Um, Abrahams is still involved, even though he's dropping the TV series, which was to have an Asian actor playing John Constantine. And there was also going to be J.J. Abraham's version of Justice League Dark. So all that seems to have taken the back foot. I mean, in the wider scheme of things, who knows what's going on now with with Warner's DC and HBO Max, because it seems to be in free fall yeah. uh, as we speak. And the, the long planned versions that most of the shows that J.J. Abraham's were producing seems to be off the rails. He signed a massive deal to go to HBO Max and development. And not one of his shows, as far as the DC shows, has, has turned up yet. I know that with the Constantine series idea, they are shipping it around for to see if anyone else wants to pick it up. I don't think Netflix will pick it up, because if Netflix wants to move ahead with a Constantine series, they'll probably do Joanna Constantine, who was introduced in the Sandman series. And even then, Andy, uh, Sandman season two is not a done deal. Yeah, I think that the only Constantine that we're going to get is the film. But, you know, I'm happy with that. I welcome it. Absolutely welcome it. With regards, Warner Brothers, yes, the struggling and a new feature for The Hollywood Reporter, which digs down into it, has suggested that Comcast's Brian Roberts has his eye on buying out Warner Discovery. All the issues that the studio is facing has plummeted their stock price and it's gone really low. And the speculation is that Zaslav's endgame was to sell it all off anyway. However, it, this won't be happening till at least April 2024 because part of the terms of the recent merger between Discovery and Warner's was that it has to remain as one company and can't be bought by other parties until 
that time has passed. But it does make it interesting. So Comcast is universal. Universal, if they buy it out, there's the whole aspect of like how much of a monopoly is it? Well, just look look across the roads to Disney with Fox. Yeah. And that's how much of a monopoly it is. So I think we're heading towards times where there's only going to be really three major studios. Let's not forget Paramount. We spoke about, about them last week. They're on a rise. But Universal may end up being part of Warner's or Warner's may end up being part of Universal. We don't know how it's going to go. Eventually, there are going to be just one or two studios. The days of the big five or even the big six are highly numbered now because, you know, MGM is now part of Amazon. I'm not in favor of Universal buying Warners. I'll, I'll put that out there. I have no shares or stock in either. I just think the, the merging of all these different studios is of a worry. And, and this idea of, of monopoly certainly springs yeah. to mind. And I think each studio has, a, has an identity. And yeah. when they start to, to morph into each other, surely you start to lose some of the identity yeah we'll wait and see uh, i mean as you say it's still fresh news and it won't happen till at least 2024 and we know it was a huge disappointment at warner's when they announced that they were scrapping batman cape crusader anyway it seems the search to find a show a new home is kind of narrowing to three major streaming services it doesn't look as though and we have mentioned this before that the series is is dead uh, and having just talked about all the changes going through with Warners, it certainly seems as though the producers aren't sitting idly by and letting that be a problem. And that Netflix, Amazon Prime and Hulu are current contenders to acquire the Batman Cape Crusaders. The Batman and Superman logos, you can take anywhere in the world and people recognize that IP. So to lose a Batman series at this stage yeah. after uh, the huge movie. It, it's a no-brainer that somebody else are, are, are going to pick it up. Yep. It, it, it was always a weird one that they cancelled, of all things, a Batman animated series, something which is a guaranteed success. But I'm glad that there's a, a bit of studio bidding war going on there because it shows that, you know, a few of the streamers out there realise that there's really good potential here. And part of uh, Warner's and Discovery's identity is uh, Steven Soderbergh's Magic Mike's Last Dance, which was initially planned the third part of the Magic Mike trilogy, originally going to be going to HBO Max. Instead, it's getting a theatrical release. Oh, right. February the 10th, 2023, as a release date for the film. Timed just in time for the Super Bowl weekend. So that's a bit of cunning strategy because yeah. they know who's not going to be interested in Super Bowl. They're going to be interested exactly. in Channing Tatum stripping down again. And it should be a profitable weekend for Channing Tatum, who's had success previously with Dog and The Vow in that release slot. The first two Magic Mike films grossed a combined $285.6 million at the global box office. It's expected that this film will draw in that audience once more. I've still not seen Magic Mike or the second film. I, I saw Magic Mike, um, and I said this before previously on the show. I think what Soderbergh has this incredible talent of doing, and, and apart from being an incredibly talented filmmaker, he has the ability to take BZ style movies mm. and give them an artistic quality that rises them above their kind of genre origins and magic mike would have been somewhat of an exploitation film but because it's soderbergh he gives it he gives it credence he gives it a quality and i'm i was the only male when i had to go and review magic mike i was sat there in the audience and looking sheepish thinking, I, I wonder what impression I'm giving right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's been a huge, a huge success. But it's also, it's, it's, it's a very clever piece of filmmaking at the same time. 
what probably won't be clever piece of filmmaking. And let's be honest, did the world really need this so quickly? But September the 30th, we will get to see the telly movie Hot Take, The Depp Heard Trial. Yes, a dramatisation of the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, which will cover the two-month defamation trial, which concluded this June. Really? Uh, starring big names such as Mark Hapke, you might remember from Days of Our Lives, as Johnny Depp, Megan Davis, Alone in the Dark, as Amber Heard, Melissa Marty, Station 19, as Depp's lawyer, and Mary Carrig from Law & Order True Crime, as Heard's lawyer. It's been directed by Sarah Lohman from a script by Guy Nicolucci, who is part of the Daily Show team. And it was fast-tracked into production. Really was, because literally the trial only finished two months ago. And already we've got a film coming out on screen at the end of this month. No interest at all. If you want to watch all of the stuff from the Depp and Heard trial, it's all there online. You don't need a dramatisation. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's pure cash and exploitation. And it will, find, it will come to a, a, a channel somewhere very high on the uh, Sky Network, around the 300, 500 mark channels, and, <laughs> and be quickly forgotten. And, yeah. uh, and people will pay very little interest in it because I, th I think the world has moved on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's I mean, we live in such an instantaneous... If you wanted to find out about uh, the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, you would go on YouTube or you would just check Twitter. <laughs> just go on TikTok. It's all on there. Gran Turismo is a film that um, I'm looking forward to, but a lot of people are still it's looking It's got a growing it. cast. Looking at it bizarrely, going, how do you make a film of just a racing game? Uh, but yeah, it's got a growing cast. David Harbour has now been added to the cast, which is, th the film is described as an ultimate wish fulfillment tale. It's been loosely based on the true story of a gamer who won a series of events and became a professional racing driver. Harbour's going to play a retired driver who acts as a mentor figure for the young star. And alongside him, Orlando Bloom has also been added, who's playing a marketing executive who sells the sport of motor racing. It comes from Neil Blomkamp. Hit or miss with Blomkamp? Mostly yeah. hit. But even his hits have some missed parts. But his visuals flair is what I'm most looking forward to in this. The races, hopefully, are going to be thrilling. The script is by Jason Hall and Zach Balin. And shooting is actually beginning this week with an okay. August 2023 release date. You're a massive fan of Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. And I'm <laughs> I'm going to get into it. I promise I will once I get through the other thousand shows that I'm, I'm not watching right now. Uh, but Sony are making a new Karate Kid movie. Yes, they are, which will have absolutely nothing to do with Cobra Kai. So there, it's not confusing already. This whiffs of just Sony realising how popular Cobra Kai has become, how huge it is, and thinking, can we cash in on this? And rather than actually approaching the team behind Cobra Kai and saying, if you were to revisit the original film and do another Karate Kid film, what would you do? They've just gone, nah, let's keep it cheap. Let's um, ignore the ignore the guys who are doing a good job with it and see what we can do. Which, last time that we had a karate kid which tried to do this, it was that awful one with Will Smith's son, Jaden. And Jackie Chan. And Jackie Chan. And it was terrible. So I, I'm not holding much confidence for this one. None of the creatives involved in Cobra Kai or the original Karate Kid seem to be involved. As a big fan, have they brought Hilary Swank into the Cobra Kai's? Is that part of canon? Not yet. But it is canon. <laughs> Never rule it out. It's all canon. Or, or we, we'll assume it's canon. It's not being referred to, but there's no reason why it can't be referred to. Okay. They've still got more seasons to come of Cobra Kai. And what they've done each season is they've introduced another element from some of the earlier films. So it's only a matter of time before Hilary Swank becomes a part of it, I reckon. We'll see. If they can get her to agree to it. Sticking with Sony, 
as well as the Karate Kid film, which is not really going to be Karate Kid. It's just going to have the name Karate Kid slapped onto it. All of those people who are excited for the Craven the Hunter movie, yes, all two of you, <laughs> will have to wait a little longer. Oh, boo. Being pushed back from January the 13th next year to October the 6th, a nine-month shift. That doesn't okay. sound good. That has also resulted in the Madam Web film that at least five people were excited for has moved from October the 6th, 2023 to February the 16th, 2024. And the Garfield movie, which Chris Pratt was looking forward to, has moved from February the 16th, 2024 to May the 24th, 2024. So a bit of a reshuffle going on over at Sony. In addition, the Adam Driver-led Sci-Fi 65 is now moved to March the 10th, 2023. And Missing, a sequel to Searching, course it is is now got a release date of february the 24th 2023 so basically it looks like they've juggled the well i I would say high expect expectation marvel films but no one's expecting anything from these films are they let's be honest not really i'll tell you what we are expecting you and i were kind of a little bit of a a minority in our love for blade runner 2049 we thought it was a classic dennis villeneuve's take on Blade Runner yep. we thought was 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 a work of genius but it didn't set the box office alike then again neither did Blade neither Runner did the original no but Ridley Scott is going back to the world as producer for an Amazon TV series called Blade Runner 2099 absolutely interested in this anyone who's read any of the novels that have spun off from the Blade Runner franchise or played any of the video games or read the comic book adaptations will know that there's a wealth of stories that they can draw within that world of replicants and Blade Runners that could really like do something great. I'm well and truly up for this. Looking forward to it. I think a TV series is probably the wisest move to be able to approach it. They've proven twice that no one wants to go to the cinema to watch a Blade Runner film. So, you know, let's let's not make that risk. Let's put it on TV. It might generate a wider audience. Well, I mean, Amazon are doing great guns at the moment with the Lord of the Rings series. So they really, I mean, we know they have all the money. So it, it, it seems the perfect avenue to explore more of the Blade Runner world because there is a lot of world still to explore. I, I'm way up for this. Hey, did you ever play way back when the PC game? The PC game? Oh, yes. There was a remastering of it as well recently that I've also picked Oh, did it up. actually happen? There was rumours that it, it was going to happen, then it wasn't going to happen. Yep. But I haven't I haven't revisited the game yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to sitting down and uh, spending time in Blade Runner. Uh, yeah, I, I loved the original game. It was such a great detective story. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I had it. It was one of the first few games I ever got. Yeah, I had a lot of time for it. Absolutely brilliant. Marvel Studios have reportedly hired Jeff Loveness to pen Avengers The Kang Dynasty, the Ooh. fifth Avengers film that will serve as part of the sixth phase of the MCU. Loveness, comedy screenwriter, who you might have seen his name pop up on episodes of Rick and Morty. That includes the award-winning Vat of Acid episode. More recently, he penned Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, the film that reportedly leads directly into the Kang Dynasty, which makes his choice to pen the Kang Dynasty perfectly understandable. Both films will star Jonathan Majors as Kang the Conqueror. Loveness joins Destin Daniel Cretton, who's also been added as director on the project. Staying with Marvel, it seems that we might have to wait if the rumour is correct for a Shang-Chi sequel as it's not due till 2025. Yep, we already know that Marvel have quite a packed slate anyway. So anything that gets added now, you just have to accept that you're going to be waiting a few years. Yeah, there's been a few 
a few more new news pieces. I didn't think that they'd have any more news coming out after they did D23 and spent a whole weekend talking about Disney. But no, no, that didn't slow down Disney at all because uh, straight after D23, we've discovered that Patty Jenkins's Star Wars Rogue Squadron has been completely pulled from the release calendar yeah. now. Do we know why, Andy? No one knows why, although it has been in development limbo for quite a lot of months. So whilst the saying that the next Star Wars film will be coming out at the end of 2024, whether this is going to be a rescheduled Rogue Squadron or a completely different film, we don't know at this point in time. But yeah, it's just dropped off the release schedule. Disney has also locked in dates in 2023 and 2024 for films such as Taika Waititi's Next Goal Wins, which will be coming out on April the 21st next year. Yes, he's finally remembered that he's supposed to be editing this film as well, as doing all <laughs> these other things. The film adaptation of Haunted Mansion Ride will arrive a few months later in August next year. And the just-revealed Wish animation will come out November next year. On to 2024, Pixar's Elio will arrive on March the 1st. Oh, that's a great birthday present for me. I'm happy with that. A Pixar film for the birthday. Uh, followed three weeks later by the live-action Snow White film, which stars Rachel Zegler and Gal Gadot on March the 22nd, 2024. And then the Inside Out sequel is set for June 2024. And the Barry Jenkins directed Lion King sequel, prequel, Mufasa, is set for July the 5th, 2024. And an untitled Marvel movie has been moved from February the 16th, 2024 to a new date on September the 6th, 2024, which puts it between Thunderbolts in July and Fantastic Four in, in November. So it's not clear what film it's going to be, or what phase of the MCU it's part of. I mean, this is pure rumour at the moment, but it, that being that uh, Moon Knight and Miss Marvel have been greenlit for a second season. As I say, it is completely a rumour. I know that we'll see Kamala Khan reappear in the Marvels, and but I think because of the charm of the series, I think it yeah. absolutely deserves, I think both deserve a second season yeah they both brought something different and creative to the mcu which is what all the services are doing they're all doing something really creative and really clever whether you like the services or not you have to appreciate that marvel no longer can be blamed for just churning out the same thing over and over again um woody allen has announced that he's going to retire from filmmaking. I thought he had. No, he's still been making films every few years. He's going to be, he's currently started pre-production on Wasp 22, which is his 50th film. And he said that this will be his final film. The director's 86 years old, so he's had a good innings. And he's made some of the funniest movies ever, ever made. Yeah. And regardless of what you think about him off screen and you know whether that's justified or not, is up for debate. We're not going to go into it here. You can't deny that he is one of the strongest filmmakers of the past five decades. Uh, he's made a wealth of great films. Like you say, some of the strongest comedies ever made. Love and Death is possibly my favourite comedy of all yeah. time. Yeah, it's funny uh, enough, that was the, that's my go-to. His more wry humour of his latter, more personal journey films has still managed to have some charm to it. Um, earlier this year, he'd said in an interview that the thrill of filmmaking has gone uh, with the decline in the theatrical experience. The, the cinemas are getting used predominantly for blockbusters and films such as his small introspective dramas don't get a, a chance at them anymore. And if he can't make films for the big screen, he doesn't see the point. So he's going to finish this final film and then step away from filmmaking. Hey, no one saw this coming. Rennie Harlan, who's been in director jail for an awful long time i don't know what he did apart from make cutthroat island with matthew modine and, and then wife gina davis but the guy went to uh, director jail for an awful long time 
he's been back with the occasional little horror movie but no one saw this coming he's remaking the horror film the strangers which is not that old and certainly doesn't need remaking yeah it's uh, it's it's not that old a film there, there are lists of other horror films that are much more worthy of, of a of a sequel or remake yeah maybe rennie harling can bring some of that magic that he brought to the exorcist franchise when he gave us exorcist the begin oh maybe not maybe not <laughs> Yeah, I've, I, I've not seen, I have seen the Rennie Harlan version. I didn't see Paul Schrader's version uh, when he remade his own film. That was, a, that was a, an interesting debacle. That's an understatement, I think. Um, Actor-turned-filmmaker Michael B. Jordan has revealed that boxing champion Saul Canelo Alvarez is going to feature in the third Creed film for MGM. As we know, jo- Jordan plays Adonis Johnson, the son of the Rocky character Apollo Creed, in Creed 1, 2, and he's also making his directorial debut with the third film about him. Canelo will make his acting debut in the film and he marks the second real-life boxer to play an on-screen role in the franchise, the other one being former cruiserweight champion Tony Bellow, who served as the rival boxer in the first film. Uh, Creed 3 is set for release March the 3rd, 2023. Andy, what's my favourite film of all time? I don't know. (laughs) Which casting the Sundance Kid? That's the one. (laughs) Uh, There's been rumours for years that there was uh, going to be a remake uh, that nobody wanted. Tom Cruise apparently was connected to it at one point. Now uh, Amazon are going to be producing a TV series about the life of the notorious Western outlaws. Uh, no, it's not starring Paul Newman and uh, Robert Redford, because that would just be ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's going to star Top Gun Maverick actor Glenn Powell and, and you can see the, uh, uh, you can see the chats and Twitter and Reddit going mental over this one Regé Jean Page in the roles of the two outlaws that'll bring out all the fans and also all the trolls I reckon Um, so it's produced by yes of all people the Russo brothers and Regé Jean Page was in The Grey Man yeah I don't know how I feel about this I you know there have been a couple of TV movie versions of it I'd rather Mm -hmm. we see this than see uh, a remake because I think there are certain movies that shouldn't be remade. I'm also looking at you, Jaws. So it's interesting to see where this will go, but I'll be interested. I mean, it's an interesting story that has different ways of of, of approaching it. And there are many, many layers to the myth that the the film, as it says at, at the beginning, some of which may be true. If the Russos are involved, please, no drones. No drones. You There's know, no drones, drones in the you West. Get drones. We don't want drones. We don't want drone footage. Not, none of that at all. Just film it. Use an actual camera, guys. Um, speaking of using actual cameras, James Cameron. There's a guy who knows how to use tech, eh? Man invented tech. Man's using tech that we can only dream of. Well, as we know, Avatar is getting a reissue for two weeks and then Avatar 2 is due at the end of this year and James Cameron's pushing the 3D again. However, he's pushing it, but being acceptance, accepting of the fact that 3D isn't the big thing that it used to be. Um, he's, he's done a whole pieces over the past few weeks with various interviews where he's spoken about the use of his technology and, you know, all the effort that he puts into it. And his comments on 3D, I kind of agree with. I'm not a lover of 3D, but I agree with his stance on it. In his words, I would say that the 3D was generally embraced for a period of time, 
Avatar won Best Cinematography with a 3D digital camera. No digital camera had ever won Best Cinematography Oscar before then. Then two out of three subsequent years, the same cameras were used by cinematographers and won the Oscar. So you got three out of four years where the Academy embraced digital cinematography and all three of those films were in 3D. 3D appears to most people to be sort of over, but it's really not over. It's just being accepted. It's now just a part of your choices when you go to a theatre to see a big blockbuster. He further goes on to explain his whole idea about it is that 3D as the choice shouldn't be forced onto people. And if you're going to make a film in 3D, do it like he does it. You make it in 3D and make it use the technology properly. Yeah. The problem with 3D came with the oversaturation of poor transfers from 2D to 3D that followed and forcing the effect on people who didn't necessarily want it. We're still looking at you, Clash of the Titans. That was one of the worst proponents of um, the whole 3D era. But yeah, I, I agree with him that 3D isn't completely dead. It does have a future, but if used correctly and actually put the effort and the money behind it to make sure that it works, I will be watching Avatar 2 in 3D because I, I, I trust James Cameron in making it you look absolutely stunning on screen because the original avatar is still one of the finest 3d films that has ever been made i don't know if you know there's a new stephen king novel due out it may have landed it may be any day now but there is a new stephen king novel called fairy tale yep. so as ever hollywood has bought up the rights and this time interesting choice of director paul greengrass is to adapt the Stephen King story. I've not heard anything about that. I did did know the new novel was coming out. Um, and Greengrass, I have I have issues. Oh, do you? I'm not a fan of Greengrass. Uh, I mean, we all got car sick when he was making uh, the Bourne movies because hey, just keep the camera still for one minute. <laughs> but I I did I thought Captain Phillips was brilliant, and I loved absolutely adored News of the World. Yeah, News of the World was uh, a lot more refined by him but he did have that whole period literally from the born supremacy onwards where everything was just like i'm holding cameras and running around like a madman yay it's like you're not making a documentary you're making a film news the world i'll give you that so we'll see but i'm still not completely sold on him because that's the only film out of his what 11 film credits that stands out to me as something to showcase what he can do it still needs to find a home with a studio or a streamer but it's it's Stephen King, so it's bound to happen. And and interestingly enough, I don't know if you know this, but Stephen King occasionally grants uh, a one dollar option deal to some of his stories, yep. and he did this with Paul Greengrass, which includes a healthy chunk of change out of the eventual film's earning. So uh, it looks as though at this point Greengrass will script as well as direct. So that's about it for the news. But sadly, there have been two major passings. Yes, uh, the first passing is actor Henry Silver, who was known for his jawline, high cheekbones and intensity in roles, made him a, a screen villain in so many films. Passed away age 95 in California. Appeared in over 130 films and TV shows over the years, playing a thug, hitman and distinctive characters in films such as Manchurian Candidate, Ocean's Eleven, Johnny Cool, Above the Law, The Boss, Italian Connection, Dick Tracy, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, and Chained Heat. He was also in films such as Alan Quartermain and The Lost City of Gold, Cinderella, TV show Book Rogers in the 25th Century. He was. Uh, Day of the Assassin, Love and Bullets, Alligator, Amazon Women on the Moon, and many, many more. Lots of the films that you might be going, what? But anyone who follows cult films will have spotted him in so many roles through the years. He was the voice of Bane in our favourite Batman animated series of the 90s. And his last screen appearance was back in 2001 in the remake of Ocean's Eleven. Survived by his two sons, Scott and Michael. 
It's a sad passing for someone who follows cult and genre films uh, to see one of these faces who not everyone recognised the name of, but you will certainly have recognised the menace and the presence whenever he was on screen. He had uh, an amazing screen look, incredibly uh, individual. So he's one of those that, of course, usually got uh, got booked to play the villain. But I, I remember him in the original Ocean's Eleven uh, and also the much underrated Ghost Dog, which I think is a, is a fantastic movie. Yeah. And I have to admit straight away that I've never really delved much into the cinematography of this person. But I recognise the influence that Jean-Luc Godard had on the world of film, who passed away this week at the age of 91. Well, the man who invented New Hollywood, I think, is probably the, the best way to describe uh, Godard. I re-watched this week uh, Le Bout de Souf, otherwise known as Breathless. And to, to imagine that that film came out in the 1960s uh, and the impact it had on the new wave uh, of filmmaking that without that movie and without that style, you wouldn't have got movies like Hard Day's Night, for instance. You wouldn't have got Easy Rider. You wouldn't have got the breaking of the Hollywood system to to have these these rebel filmmakers. I didn't always like everything that, that Goddard did. I've got a lot of love for Ludwig de Souf. I think it's, it's an incredible movie. Very, very dated in so many ways. And yet so contemporary in so many other ways it it's style it's energy it's rogue filmmaking it's art it's the way that we now accept the language of cinema which only a few years previous we were locked into to, into the studio system into what was known as classic hollywood so i think you know if you've ever got to go and see a a goddard film i would always recommend uh, uh, le bout de souf and that is this week's the news there's still much, much more to come here on The Film File, including a deep dive into the 2007 film Stardust and plenty of reviews. But before that, if you haven't done so already, why don't you join us at The Film File by becoming a subscriber, remembering to like and remembering to leave a review. As a member of The Film File family, you get extended episodes and the occasional bonus episode as well. Also, you can find out more by following us on your favourite social network. How can we do that, Andy? What, do they, what can the kids get down with if they want to know more about the film file? You can head on over to Twitter and you can follow us at Film File UK. You can search for Film File UK on pretty much all social media platforms and you'll find us in some way, shape or form, which will at least keep you up to date on new episodes and content as it lands. Or you can, you can actually email us. You can get in touch directly. Podcast at filmfile.uk. Any thoughts on films, film-related subjects, lists, topics, films you think that we should deep dive, films you think we should never deep dive, films that you were surprised to find that we did deep dive, anything at all, just uh, send us an email over and we'll get back to you. And if you follow us on Twitter, we will follow you back because we spread the love. You can also join us on No Barriers Radio for the radio version of this very same podcast. That's nobarriersradio.com every Thursday at 8 o'clock. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Directed by Matthew Vaughan, starring Claire Danes, Charlie Cox, Sienna Miller, Ricky Gervais, Michelle Pfeiffer, Robert De Niro. It's an adaptation of the graphic novel by Neil Gaiman. It is 2007's Stardust. The star has fallen. All great epics. When I find out, all of us shall be young again. Begin with an adventure. Touché. Yeah! 
But this August... Careful how much magic you use. Mm. It's beginning to show. You've never seen one. Everyone's talking about a fallen star. Fight like this. Enough. Claire Danes with Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert De Niro. Stardust. Starring Charlie Cox as Tristan, a young man from a fictional town of war. Somewhere, sometime in Great Britain. The Wall is a town on the border of a magical fantasy kingdom, the Kingdom of Stormhold. Tristan enters the magical world to collect a fallen star to give to his beloved Victoria, played by Sienna Miller, in return for her hand in marriage. Upon collecting the star, it is, to his surprise, a woman named Yvonne, played by Claire Danes. But there are more out there hunting the fallen star. Witches, the princes of Stormhold, all the while, while Tristan tries to get back to the Wall before Victoria's birthday. It was adapted from a graphic novel by Charles Vess and Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman has kind of done the sort of the opposite of Alan Moore by having some amount of control over the influence and development of his film adaptations. Andy, I've only seen this quite recently. I know it's been out since 2007, so what the heck happened there? <laughs> Do you have love for this film? Because I'm somewhere on the fence about this one. I had love from this film from the very first moments that I cast eye on it on the big screen. Um, screenplay from Jane Goldman with Matthew Vaughan, also co-writing and directing. For me, that was safe hands. Matthew Vaughan, yeah, he proved himself to me with layer cake that he could tell a tale. And having someone like him involved in adapting a Neil Gaiman story, I was interested. And when I saw what he did with it, it tapped into Gaiman's tale, made some tweaks to the story to make it lighter in tone, which Gaiman had agreed to and said that actually it makes sense rather than having people having a film that's quite bleak and sinister get released and it not finding an audience. It makes more sense to make it fantastical. Drawing inspiration from Princess Bride kind of storytelling rather than a darker fantasy presentation. Because I read the 1997 DC comics and it was a lot more of a, of a darker take on yeah. sort of the fairy tale themes and ideas. This film, for me, fits alongside like that 80s era of fantasy storytelling, like your never-ending stories, your labyrinth, your dark crystals that have that mystical, magical energy with a small hint of darkness in there, but it's the fun, it's the wit, it's the charm and the adventure that carries along at a pace that made it, for me, very easy to get caught up in. But what really worked in this film for me was the casting Right from the start, the casting was spot on. Charlie Cox was still relatively fresh-faced to cinema. And it's, it's interesting like in this era that you know we know him for Daredevil, to see him as such a young role and just go, oh, wow, how he's grown. Because <laughs> after that, he went on to do the TV series Boardwalk Empire. Yep, which that's where he really started to grow as an actor. But in this, being relatively fresh to the screen, it gives an innocent wonder that serves the character of Tristan well. He seems lost and clueless a lot of the time, which kind of Tristan should be because he doesn't understand this mythical world that he's now found himself in. Uh, but for me, it was Claire Danes. And we said this when we covered Romeo and Juliet. I, I fell in love with Claire Danes on Romeo and Juliet. And this film cemented my love for her. I adore her in this film. She's fiery. She's demanding. She's focused from the start as the fallen star Yvonne, who immediately is likable as a result. And then as she grows as a character and indeed glows as a character as the tale progresses, you just can't help but just be captivated by her. The glowing element that was added is used so deftly at moments in the film 
to represent her emotions. And it makes for when I went back and f- watched this for a second time, I picked up on some of the glowing moments a lot more than what I did the first time when it only becomes clear where the glowing happens towards the end. So when you're rewatching it and you see a slight glow from her and you realize that's as she's starting to connect with Tristan. That's when she's starting to love him, even though he's not recognized his love for her. And it was just the, the, the pair just have a sizzling chemistry on screen that by the end of it, you're just completely caught up with. Um, and around them, the delectable support cast. Michelle, you've mentioned Michelle Pfeiffer, one of the three witch queens. You've got Mark Strong as Septimus, one of the brothers who's seeking the gem. Robert De Niro as the brilliant Captain Shakespeare, who's maybe not so fierce a pirate of the skies as everyone thinks he is. Throw in Jason Fleming, Rupert Everett, Ricky Gervais, Peter O'Toole, Adam Buxton, David Williams, Henry Cavill, Mark Williams, Dexter Fletcher, and Ian McKellen doing the narration. And that's a packed cast of names that all brings something to this material for me. I adore this film. And it was great this week re-watching it with my daughter next to me, who I'm introducing to Gaiman through Sandman and through this. And she's going to get a load of my books thrown at her um, at this race because uh, I think I think I've captivated her. Matthew Vaughan has now got a, a career best known for doing odd comic book adaptations. You know, after this, he followed uh, with Kingsman. Uh, he did X-Men First Class. He turned down the third x-men sequel last stand and then this cropped up on his radar people like terry gilliam at some point had been Mm. in discussions to do it gilliam turned it down because he thought it was too close to his uh, brother's grim film vaughan followed the route of having half the financing for the film being british so you've got a certain british quality to it that runs through it gaiman himself says the film is like a fantasy version of the 1934 romantic comedy it happened one night there are certain echoes, as you said, to, to Princess Bride uh, and, and takes it in a very different way than the original book. Now, I kind of like this. I, I don't dislike it. I, I think that would be very unfair to say. I had a, a rollicking good time, but it, it, it kind of suffered from a lot of the elements that I find in Gaiman's work which is there are vignettes to his to his work and there's a certain storytelling style in all of Gaiman's work and and I just found that while they're not reverential to it they're reverential to the style of Gaiman and 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 it felt more literary than it did sometimes Mm. visual but I did have a good time with it I I was a little bit unsure of Robert De Niro at first but uh once he kind of revealed himself shall we say uh, I, I thought he was engaging. I know that took a lot of criticism for that, but I, but I thought it was a, a nice little turn. Overall, I just think it's a, a, an enjoyable movie. I, I don't see it as a classic. I, I wouldn't be willing to get round to ever seeing it again. I just sort of sat with me and went, yeah, it's very Neil Gaiman. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but I didn't I didn't come away loving it. it for me, it's, it's probably, aside from Coraline, this is the most accessible of Gaiman's tales for a mass audience. The manner in which it presented, like I say, the Princess Bride kind of storytelling works well for a mainstream audience who are maybe not familiar with Gaiman's style of prose. Gaiman himself was so pleased with the decisions made for the changes in the film. He does still prefer the book ending for the book version, but he said that he feels that the movie ending was perfect for the movie. And that's one thing that I like about Gaiman adaptations. Like you said at the head of this, is that unlike Alan Moore, he likes to have an involvement in it, even if it's just like to advise and, you know, to talk through why they're making changes. And it means that any changes that do end up going through, 
he's kind of agreed to and go, oh, well, yeah, you can do that and help them refine it to make it still have that game and kind of feel. And I'm a huge fan of game and storytelling style, which is why films like this are ones that I will keep going back to and back to. The alterations from the source material will only upset the most diehard of book readers. Uh, you know, if, if the writer himself is happy with the changes, just be happy with them. Yeah, uh, just accept accept the changes because they've been made for the right reasons. And if you're never read Gaiman and you're looking for an entry point to Gaiman, then this is it. This is the film to use as an entry point because you will get an idea of the style of woven tapestry storytelling that he, he makes. And he's like that with all of his materials. So if you can't get into the way that he weaves the multiple threads of narrative together in this, then Gaiman isn't for you. But if you find that you enjoy this film, there's a wealth of books and comics out there that you really need to start exploring. So where can we find Stardust if we want to watch it, Andy? You can currently find it on Paramount Plus or you can find it on Sky and Now TV. It was on Netflix up until about a week ago. <laughs> so uh, we've just missed the boat on that one. Uh, but yeah, it is available out there on the streaming services or just go out and buy it. You can pick it up quite cheap now. It's been out for a while. Well, we're picking up the Blu-ray if you're a fan of it. We'll be back with another deep dive next week. And now it's time for some reviews. And again, two weeks on the trot, Andy and I have both seen one of the same films. So let's kick off with Clerks 3. I'm living on borrowed time. I'm gonna make a movie! Everything in the script is something someone I know said. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Take off your pants. That's how we did it in the 90s, son! Clerks 3. Let's start this review by a bit of honesty, shall we? Not that we're ever dishonest to you, but I'm a huge fan of Kevin Smith. I have a, a spiritual liking of, of Kevin Smith. When he brought Clerks out in 1994, it was crude. It was rough around the edges. It was downright funny. But there was this idea that somebody without any film school experience, just a love of movies, could put everything onto a credit card and, and and make a movie. Since that moment, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Kevin Smith. He's very good at self-mythologizing himself. The biggest brand in the world for Kevin Smith is Kevin Smith, and he has uh, reaped it to the most ultimate of, uh, of benefit. He's also one of us. He's an absolute geek. You can love him and hate him, and sometimes both at the same time. And um, he's proved to be a force to be reckoned with. I'd love to get him. My, my dream would be to have him on the show because I think we could talk for hours. I'm a big fan of his podcast. I'm sometimes less of a fan of his work. Uh, I think Moral Rats is an odd little film that I've got an awful lot of love for. I think Dogma's an interesting film that could have just done better with more budget to it. I, I think uh, Chasing Amy is the best movie he's made and, and, and nothing can take away how great Chasing Amy is for me. It, it's just uh, perfection. There are elements to it that don't work, but I think it's perfection. We were just saying just before we started recording this bit how we can't believe that it's 2006 and Clerks 2 came down and that was for 50% of it great and for the other 50% a miserable experience. And then I've kind of drifted away from from Kevin Smith, from his cinema work at least and uh, and seen his work on things like The He-Man Show which I think was was better than uh, some of the 30-year-old basement dwellers gave it credit for. But let's turn our attention to Clerks 3. And I'm going to let Andy go first. Because <laughs> I think we're in a kind of agreement with this, aren't we? To a degree, but I think I I kind of 
appreciated some elements more than you did because I know that your first words to me as soon as that finished let me know that you were not a fan quick synopsis we return to the convenience store which is now under ownership by Dante and Randall and are immediately reminded of moments from the first film as over the opening titles a hockey game plays out on the roof and it's at that point so early on that you pretty much realise that you have to accept that this is a film that's going to rely on the nostalgia to carry it along and there's not much in the way of a new story Randall suffers a heart attack In the aftermath, he reflects on what his life has achieved, coming up with the idea to make a film about his life in the convenience store. And, of course, movies. Convincing Dante of the plan, they set about shooting scenes that come directly from Clerks, roping in the cast of that earlier film to reprise their part in what starts as charming and sly meta-comedy. But pretty soon, the realisation that we are simply being told to laugh at the same scenes we've already seen played out before sets in. At that point that you realise that quite a lot of this film is pretty much unnecessary. It's it's meta on the highest level of meta, isn't it? Yeah. It's not saying that there's nothing to enjoy here. Like I said, I enjoyed some elements a lot more than Lee. There's a strong emotional core. There's a reflection on life, your life's journey and what is important through your life. And it's certainly the approach that the film kind of needed as a closure of the Clerks trilogy of films. But sadly, and you commented on this after we'd seen it, that... Every time that it does tap into something poignant and reflective, it forces unnecessarily over-the-top humour in, which kind of cheapens the moment. Yeah. There's a few laughs, don't get me wrong. I did chuckle. I chuckled at a lot of the things that were referencing earlier films. But I did find Elias's journey, who I never liked in Clerks 2, and I didn't like at the beginning of Clerks 3. But as he starts to embrace, sell his soul to Satan and uh, turn away from Jesus, every time he popped up in a different costume, it elicited a chuckle from me. I quite liked what they were doing with him, with um, moving him into a darker moment. But the majority of the laughs for this came from simply being presented things from Clerks again, reminding me of how fresh that film was at the time and how maybe, just maybe, trying to bring that to modern times was a bad idea. We know that Smith suffered a a life-changing heart attack a couple of years ago, and and this is a big part of of the story from it, about reassessing your life and reassessing where you are and what you've done with that life. I will always like Smith, and I I like him for the fact that he has has built this Kevin Smith brand by being a film geek, and, um, you know, by the grace of God go I, he's got the career (laughs) that I've always wanted. (laughs) Um, He gets to work in comic books, he gets to work in movies and TV, and all because He's a he's a, a film geek and comic geek and uh, bless his cotton socks for that. He's not much of a director. I think probably his best no. work as a director, as I said, was was chasing Amy uh, and the stuff he's done on things like Supergirl and The Flash, where he he, he can prove that he he can do something interesting. I think I'd probably throw Red State in there. Yeah, uh, Red State was. A, I've never seen Tusk. I must be honest, but a Red State is. Um, is again a half of it is is a is a, a really interesting movie. It's they're never complete, and and chasing Amy and and clerks, and to some extent, Malrats are, are complete movies. But the the, the humour feels shoehorned into something that works best when it's at its emotional lows, when characters are having to uh, uh, look at their lives uh, and look past over their lives in, in more than one occasion. That's when the film came alive for me, mm. is when it was touching and poignant. And then you've got to put that with uh, soporific humour that, that sort of it doesn't balance out. Uh, it misses a lot of the pop culture references that, make clerks work so well and ultimately i just find that it's it's disappointingly flat visually it lacks that while it's cheap 
it somehow likes the the rawness that clerks had and for a film that is about clerks a bit about the original movie at least it, it didn't feel like a clerks movie more so than clerks 2 clerks 2 was half of a good film the second half of the film was, was rotten to the core i'm glad the clerks journey is over and i wish it could have gone out on a funnier high but it, at least it went out on a good emotional high yeah ultimately i had to be disappointed i found myself cringing rather than loving it and i was looking forward to seeing this film yeah i think when the best part of your film is a couple of minutes of cameos at an audition scene you need to question whether it really needed the remaining 98 minutes to bother with good emotional core nice idea as a fan of kevin smith you have to be a major fan of kevin smith to really get the enjoyment from this if you're not a big fan of him then there's nothing in here for you like you said smith can't direct he's acknowledged in many interviews that the reason why he won't ever do a marvel film is because he's not good at directing so he knows that he's clumsy with direction and the direction is clumsy the camera placement is amateurish odd at times i found it threw me out uh, due to its some, yeah. some odd choices of uh, how some of the scenes were shot but maybe that was another meta point which was just kind of lost in the mix somewhere. Who knows? It just feels amateurish. And at this stage in his career, maybe he shouldn't have been making an amateurish feel of Clerks unless he was deliberately going to do it and make it in grainy black and white and make it feel like an amateur film. But like you say, it tries to take that approach, but it doesn't. it, it seems too glossy at the same time, yeah. which kind of just doesn't work. After the recent Jane Silent Bob reboot and now this, I'm only hoping now that the plans to make more Rats 2 never come to fruition. Yeah. Also, just on a quick aside, one of the reasons I would never hope it happens is how old the cast looked. <laughs> now, I know we've been with them since 1996 and they started out in their early 20s. But boy, the majority yeah. of this cast haven't aged well including Jason Mewes' teeth. Uh, well, his, his teeth <laughs> seem to have aged a lot better than him because they don't look like his teeth for some reason. It's and that just odd. Of... It was like looking at James Coburn's mouth on a different He's had some weird actor. dental reconstruction going on and it is just so jarring because there you've got Jay with bright, white, perfect teeth. <laughs> More than any human being should have. Every time he was on screen, I was just like, Okay, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? I don't get it. Mate, that, that probably makes this film worth seeing, just to go and see Jason Muse's teeth. <laughs> so uh, go for Jason Muse's teeth, not for the rest of the film. It, it got a two and a half out of five for me, which that makes it okay. It was okay, but it's flawed. I'd, I'd go with a two, just for the fact that I'll always stand by, by Kevin Smith, because I admire his vision, and I admire the fact that, um, as I said, he's, he's the geek lord, and he yeah. does all the things that, you know, Given a chance, Andy and I would do. And he's making films for himself now. He's, he's, you know, he's not following a studio doctrine. Yeah. He's making, he's making what he wants to make, and you've got to respect that to some degree. Whether it works for you or not, beside the point. If Kevin Smith's making films for him, good on him. So that's Clerks Three. Andy, what else have you got? So next up, we've got Fall, which is on limited cinema release across the UK at this point in time. You got this, Becky. You gotta come up here. Trust me. I don't have a signal. If anyone called 911, they'd be here by now. We have 50 feet of rope. I can't reach. Are we going to make it? You can do this. Watch out! Fall. Only in theaters. Becky and Hunter are thrill seekers who scale mountains and cliff sides with Becky's husband, Dan. However, 
Tragedy strikes and Dan dies. Becky becomes distant, pushing those closest to her away. Hunter, a year later, comes up with a plan to bring Becky back to life again by scaling a 2,000-foot TV tower in the desert. But the old tower proves to be unsafe, and the pair find themselves trapped at the top of it with no way of contacting anyone to help them. Fall plays on all the tropes of the genre throughout and also plays into the contrivances of plot at every opportunity. Attempts to get help are thwarted by one obvious moment after another and also the film has moments that just stand out as plain ridiculous. After almost two days trapped, Becky's phone screen is glimpsed with pretty much a full battery left despite her having used it multiple times throughout. But despite all this, it still offers tension, drama and surprises. The direction keeps things tight on the pair. They're isolated at the top of this tower and it occasionally pulls out to show the scale and the height of the predicament. Vertigo-inducing shots mean that those of a height aversion nature may find themselves a little unnerved and uneasy throughout. The pedal is fraught and there's plenty of moments that you'll have your heart leaping in suspenseful panic at. This is an average film that's lifted by the skillful manner it's presented. And it makes for one solid one-time watch. Not a film that I'll go back and revisit, but a film that I had a lot of fun watching that initial time. I, I quite fancy this one. I remember seeing the trail some weeks ago and thinking it, it looked kind of interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll wait for streaming. And then the final film landed on streaming this week, and that's Do Revenge. Okay. Before you do that, Andy, I'm going to quickly point out that I saw um, Pinocchio, the remaker on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Everything you said was absolutely right. How to make uh, a wooden boy brought to life look more CGI <laughs> and less real. Boy, I, I couldn't hate a film more if I tried going through it. The very little in the way that stood out. Yes, we know that the original story, the original, original story is just a series of, of shorts that are somehow loosely connected. And while the original Pinocchio had charm, this was this was soulless. I found it irritable at almost every moment. Even stuff that was quite clever, like giving Gepardo a backstory, which which at least didn't feel creepy anymore. Yeah, I I just I just I couldn't invest in it, and I tried and I tried and I tried. Uh, but I, it kind of makes me wonder what happened to Robert Zemeckis. But yeah. those are my quick thoughts on on Pinocchio. I I am as you looking forward to the Del Toro version. Yeah. On to Do Revenge. I spent 17 years meticulously curating the perfect life. I had the perfect friends, the perfect boyfriend. Maybe you could send me something to keep me company. But do you know where all of that got me? Absolutely destroyed. Max ruined my life. He'll never get away with this. Carissa Jones, she started a nasty rumor about me. She told everyone that I tried to hold her down and kiss her. Turned me into this predator. She destroyed me. I wish we could hire people to take them down. We should team up and do each other's revenge. Don't you want to make her pay? I don't want to make her pay. I want to burn her to the ground. Whoa. You're giving off some serious Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction energy. Glenn energy. This is a film that came as a pleasant surprise to me. It's a hybrid of mean girls and strangers on a train. Do Revenge sees two high school students, Drea, played by Camilla Mendez, and Eleanor, played by Maya Hawke, form a friendship and agree to get revenge on the people who shamed and shunned the other party. Drea seeks retribution after a video of her sent privately to her boyfriend Max was leaked and destroyed her social standing. Eleanor became an outcast after rumours about her holding down her friend Carissa, played by Ava Capri, and trying to kiss her had spread around. 
As the pair exact their plans over the course of the school year, things look set to play out perfectly for them until some new information comes to light that changes everything. The film looks like a teen-focused TV show. The style is colourful and chirpy, with a hip selection of music tracks playing out over key scenes, giving it an MTV-style edge to it. But even from the early moments of the film, as we're induced to the setup, it's clear that there's something more to this than just the bubblegum pop and high school drama. A sharp wit and a slight edge are apparent. And by the time Drea and Eleanor start to exact their revenge plans, I was absolutely engrossed. Mendes, who most will know from Riverdale, brings that same level of wealthy societal climber energy that she has as Veronica in that show, and she fits the part well. It's familiar, and she embodies that energy. Hawk, as Eleanor, is pure fire. Plain and unassuming, she's the cliché of the plain girl who has a makeover to turn her into a social butterfly so she can infiltrate the high life and get close to Max. And Hawk absolutely sells it. Around them, the support cast play the caricatures of high school well, with Austin Abrams being immediately unlikable in a rather likable manner as Max. And a really, really surprising turn by Sophie Turner as one early target of revenge that caught me off guard. Sir Michelle Geller also hops on board as the headmaster of the school, relishing her moments on screen as much as we do. Do Revenge sells itself as one thing on the trailer which whilst it is kind of actually that thing, the fact it is more than just that thing could easily be overlooked by the promotional materials. Don't let this one pass you by because it looks like generic teen angst drama, but it's far more than the glossy look would suggest. So that's this week's reviews. That sounds intriguing, Andy. I probably would have passed on it, but now I I am genuinely intrigued. So that's what's out this week. What else can we find? So cinemas this weekend, Ticket to Paradise releases across the UK. There's also Blonde gets a limited cinema release before it drops onto Netflix in a couple of weeks. Don't Worry Darling, the film that has been getting all the negative publicity, which is working to sell tickets in advance, releases at the box office. And as mentioned earlier, Avatar gets a reissue for the next two weeks at cinemas. It's out for a two-week only engagement. So if you're planning to see Avatar, get it watched over this next two weeks. Over on streaming, we've got After Yang, which sees Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith. One film that we enjoyed earlier this year that didn't quite get the box office that it should have done, Uncharted, yep. lands on Now TV and Sky. I might even give that, give that another shot, you know. And also this week, this was initially planned for a cinema release, but it's now become a Sky original, okay. Shark Bait. The title alone has drawn me in. Yes, I'm going to be watching a dodgy Sky original this week. Um, Over on Amazon, I didn't particularly love it. Lee got a lot from it, but you'll get a chance to watch Bill and Ted face the music without having to pay an extra fee this this week as it lands on the Amazon Prime service. And that's pretty much it across the streaming services, aside from the plethora of TV shows that are already out there. And we're, we're really finding it hard to keep up with. Yeah, there's so much out there. We are, we're living in a golden age. I say this all the time, and especially for geek stuff. If you were to go back and tell my 12-year-old self that I'd be watching Marvel shows, I would have, I would have laughed in my adult face. You know, when you've got uh, House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings playing basically opposite each other. Um, it's, it's never been a better time to have uh, geek shows. And long may it last. And saying long may it last, it's about time that this particular episode comes to a close. But before we go, we do this, of course, every week is our neat thing. Stuff that we've enjoyed, we've liked, we've loved, we've tasted, we've played, we've read. You name it, as long as it's neat, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? My neat thing for this week was quite an easy pick. Whilst sat perusing something to pass the time with earlier this week, I jumped onto Paramount Plus. 
and look through some of the new content added. And one of the things that's been added is the whole five and a half hour set list from the Taylor Hawkins tribute. Wow, I did not know that. It's the Wembley set event that took place earlier this month. There's another event taking place in LA at the end of the month, I believe. Um, Hopefully that one's going to land as well. But five and a half hours of marvellous music and also stories and emotion in memory of late drummer Taylor Hawkins, who sadly passed away earlier this year. Very sad. And the names who are involved in it. I mean, obviously, you've got the Foo Fighters because it's the Foo Fighters. Uh, But you've got Liam Gallagher's there. Josh Homm joins them. Coattail Riders, which was Hawkins' second band. Uh, Wolfgang Van Halen joins for a few songs. Uh, Supergrass pop up. Then Crooked Vultures, The Pretenders. Uh, Brian Johnson and Lars Ulrich join them for a rendition of Back in Black and Let There Be Rock. Man, they kick. Rush and Dave Grohl give us a few Rush tracks in there. Queen pop up. Paul McCartney pops up towards the end. There's huge names involved with cover versions of not only Foo Fighters material, but also other people's material that Taylor loved. And that's what the whole thing is. It's all an exploration of everything that Taylor loved about music. The people who'd met him through gigs and through his career and had built up this relationship. And like I say, it's not just the music, it's them telling their stories as well of activities that took place backstage, how they got to know Taylor and what Taylor meant to everyone, including you get to see Taylor's family and his son, who is a kick-ass drummer, as you would expect, and gets to come out and play drums towards the end. Absolutely brilliant concert. Watch it in chunks. Watch it in one go. Just get it watched. Five and a half hours that you will not regret. And where's that again, Andy, for those who want to watch it? That's over on Paramount+. Plus. It's well worth taking that one-month subscription just for this. My neat thing is uh, is a little bit late to the party, and that's the last season on Stranger Things. And I found it a, a bit of a, a a bit of a troll to get through it with the almost feature length episodes. Let alone that the last episode is two and a half hours. It adds up to thirteen hours worth of television. But the geek inside me can't help but but love Stranger Things. It put Netflix on the map more so, I think, than than anything else. It was a, a lot darker this season. It was a lot denser than the, the previous seasons. It managed to inject uh, an interesting backstory into all the well-established characters and, of course, the universe. It had heart. It had uh, scares and really clever-looking set pieces. And the thing that I've I've enjoyed most about the whole Stranger Things, and to some extent this reflects on what we've talked about with Clerks, is that we've allowed to grow with these characters. We've allowed been allowed to see insights of how characters have changed, their positions have positions have changed on each other. I think one thing that's always been very clever about Stranger Things is characters aren't always what they seem. You think that the uh, good-looking rich kid is going to be evil, turns out to have a heart of gold. We think that the the bitchy character is always going to be a bitch. Turns out she's heroic. I think that's the strength of Stranger Things. It allows its characters to grow organically. Mm. And of course, this season, you've got to hold up, firstly, to Jamie Campbell Bower's uh, performance as the, the season's villain. But of course, Hellfire Club themselves, it took the character of Eddie Munson, who I recognised as being a, not quite me, but I recognise that kind of kid. There's been a lot of my friends. Josie Quinn was just absolutely brilliant and took a character that could have been the rock cliche into something a lot cleverer. 
thoroughly enjoyed it. It's taken me time to get there. They've kind of cut season four in half. I didn't mind that because I think we need a break before we come back for wherever the Duffer brothers are going to uh, are going to take us next. And it just proves, again, that we are living in this golden age of geek TV when Stranger Things is loved by so many. Eddie Munson, with his um, love of Metallica and D&D, was yeah. definitely me at that age. Oh, yeah, long I mean, hair, I, I was that long The obsession kid. with, like, running games with my gaming group and listening to metal, that was me. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much recognisable. It's taken all the elements from Goonies and Lost Boys and Stephen King and, and just done something uh, something very fresh with it. And the Duffer Brothers d- deserve all the plaudits for, for taking what would be uh, a homage to geekdom and, and turning it into popular culture. It's been, it's been an absolute fantastic run and uh, when it ends with the next season. If anything, some of the episodes went on too long, but ultimately had a great time with it. Great time. And that, folks, is it for this week. Uh, thank you for joining us here on the Film File. We always enjoy doing this, and we do it because we hope you enjoy it too. So what we hope you can do is spread the word. Get the word out there for the Film File. The more listeners we can get, the more we can do with the show. That's your mission for this week, kids, whether you choose to accept it. Uh, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Andy, any plans for this week? I've got nothing really much lined up, so it's just going to be continue through me Halloween rewatch. Well, see how that plays out. Probably get the whole lot of them watched by the end of today for at this rate. <laughs> well, we'll see you again next week, folks. But if there's one thing I've learned about all my years watching Earth, is that people are what they may seem. Swinging sixties version. <laughs> yeah. As you know, Andy, a, a musician as well as a film fan. So the the teenage moon age, teenage, teenage moon age, moon age, teenage moon age Ninja Turtles, teenage <laughs> moon age Ninja Turtles. We start a new franchise, <laughs> <laughs> and I know and what's it's ours. I know what's going on the post credit sting for the show today. <laughs> Kevin Smith can make the series. <laughs> Come on, Kev, step up. Bowie in a half shell, <laughs> moon age power. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> postings. <laughs>